This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features more than 100,000 titles, including science books you've been meaning to check out, like Dan Ariely's The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves, and Richard Panic's The 4% Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and The Race to Discover the Rest of Reality. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast, Science Talk, posted on December 25th, 2012. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... The ability to rationalize our dishonesty away is incredibly human. And we need to think about how to fight this. That's Dan Ariely. He's professor of behavioral economics at Duke University. His most recent book is The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. In the last issue of Scientific American Mind magazine, staff editor Ingrid Wickelgren published a Q&A with Ariely called Unveiling the Real Evil Genius. You can find that article online at our website. It's excerpted from a long phone interview that Wickelgren did with Ariely. After listening to the entire interview, we decided to share the audio, even though we only have the recording of Ariely's half of the conversation. Fortunately, Ariely is quite a monologist, so it's still a satisfying listen. I've separated sections of the interview with short musical bridges to let you know when there was a major shift in the conversation. So without any further ado, here's Dan Ariely. What made me think to start with that creative people might be uh, more dishonest? So we've been doing research on dishonesty for a long time. And there are basically two models of dishonest behavior. The economic model is a model in which people do a cost-benefit analysis. You go buy a store and you ask yourself how much money do they have, what's the chance I'll be caught, and you kind of do a cost-benefit analysis and you decide whether to rob the store or not. And and we actually find very little evidence that this is how people think. You know, maybe there's some psychopaths out there, but in general we don't find that this is a good description of human behavior. What we do find is a good description of the dishonesty that we all engage in, is that lots and lots and lots of us are able to cheat a little bit and still think of ourselves as honest people, right? And this basically suggests that dishonesty is all about rationalization. It's all about the small acts we can take and then think to ourselves, no, this is not real cheating. And, and you can think about range of things, right? You can think about people who do accounting frauds. And when they start, they say, you know, the rules of accounting are so unclear. Is it really so bad or is it kind of almost okay? Or maybe people say to themselves, oh, I'll fix it in the next quarter. Or if you think about Clinton, right? I didn't have sex with that woman or relations. I don't remember what he said exactly. Right. At the time, he probably thought that, you know, he redefined sex. And this was probably in his mind, he probably didn't cheat. So if you think that the main mechanism is rationalization, then then what you come up with, and that's what we find, is that we're basically trying to balance two things. We're trying to balance feeling good about ourselves. On one hand, we get some pleasure or some satisfaction, some utility from thinking of ourselves as honest, moral, wonderful people. On the other hand, we try to benefit from cheating. Now you can say, how could you do both? How could you do both? Well, rationalization allow you to do a little bit of cheating and still feel good about yourself. Right? So rationalization is what allows you to live with some cheating and not pay a cost in terms of your own view of yourself. 
Now, if this is a story, and the main mechanism that we need to understand is Russianization, then what you say is what happens, what kind of people would be able to rationalize better than other people, right? Better storytellers, right? And what what we thought about is that creative people, right? Because if you're creative, you just find more ways to tell yourself better stories. You find more ways to cheat and still tell yourself a story about why this is okay. So from our perspective, we thought that creativity is something that basically contributes to the ability of rationalization. And and that's basically what we, we try to test. And we also tested intelligence, by the way, and we found that intelligence doesn't change anything. It's the addition of creativity beyond intelligence. Now, there's some correlation between uh, intelligence and creativity, so they're not totally independent, but it's not the smartness part. It's the creativity part. Right? It's the creativity part that lets you find out all kinds of ways to convince yourself about why what you're doing is actually okay. And we've done it in multiple ways, the studies. So the first thing we did was we just measured creativity. And there's lots of ways to measure uh, creativity. Uh, we picked a few of them. We asked people for self-descriptions, you know, how much, to what degree words related to creativity describe you. We also ask people to do things like the brick test. The brick test is a very standard way to measure creativity where we ask people what kind of things could you do with the brick? And you give them 90 seconds and you see how many different usages they can come up with. And you know, simple things are like I'm using it as a, I'll use it as a brick to build something or I'll use it as a paperweight. But there's, there's more creative ways to think about Using using a brick where you say I'm going to use this as a weight to exercise or if you say I'm going to put it uh, to connect it to my shoe to be a little taller. I mean you can come up with all kinds of stories about what you're going to do with a, with a brick. And and what we found to start with is that, you know, more creative people were indeed more likely to cheat in our in our experiments. And it's important to actually make a distinction. I I'm not saying that creative people cheat and non creative people don't cheat. What I'm saying is that all of us are cheats. All of us cheat a little bit. And what happens is creative people are just a little bit better at it. So it's not about the fact that uh, creativity bad, non-creativity good. It's about the fact that we all have this capacity, uh, but creativity creates extra benefit for people in terms of their ability to, to get away with it from their own perspective. So So two things happen. One is this realization of the importance of rationalization, right? So I, we did all kinds of studies about dishonesty that basically got us to the conclusion that it's all about rationalization. Uh, for, for example, one of the, the studies that we did basically had the following uh, structure. So some people uh, get to fill a sheet with 20 simple math problems. We ask them to solve as many as they can, and we promise them, in that particular case, 50 cents per question. And and when they finish, we ask them to count how many questions of the 20 we, they got correctly. We don't give them enough time, so they can't do all of them. We ask them to think about, to, to count how many questions they got correctly. And then we ask them to go to the back of the room and shred that piece of paper and come back to us and tell us how many questions they solve correctly. And what, and what we find is that people come to us and they report that they solve six questions, but we actually play with the shredder. So the shredder doesn't shred all the page, it only shreds the sides. So we can go back into the shredder and find out how many questions people really solve correctly. 
And what we find is people solve four and report six, right? So that's our basic paradigm of how we test cheating. But what's one of the most frightening experiments for me was what we call the token experiment. In the token experiment, people did the same thing. They worked for five minutes. They solved as many problems as they could. They went to the back of the room. They shred the piece of paper. They came to us. But now, instead of saying, Mr. Experimenter, I solved X problems, give me X dollars, they say, I solved X problems, give me X tokens. So when they looked into the experiment into the eyes and cheated and lied, they lied for tokens. And, and basically what we found was that people doubled their cheating. Uh, five seconds later, they walk 12 feet to the side and change it for dollars, right? So, so the only difference was that they, when they look at somebody into the eyes and lied, they lied for something that was one step removed for money. Now, this frightened me, worries me to a great degree, of course, because we move into a society that is going to be cashless, right? We're creating electronic wallets and mortgage-backed securities and derivatives, and we have stock options. I mean, you can probably make a list of your favorite CEOs who nevertheless have backdated their stock options, right? And you can ask yourself, what what would it – I mean, backing – Backdating stock option is multiple steps removed from money, right? It's not money, it's stocks, it's not stock, it's stock option, it's not changing the number, it's changing the date. And as we move to become more and more cashless society, you can ask yourself whether all of this would help us be more immoral but still think of ourselves as moral people, right? Basically allow more fudge factor in. So that, that was for me the most, and, and then I thought about what's, what's going on here? And I, I remember a little joke, and the joke is that little Johnny comes home from school with a note from the teacher that said little Johnny stole a pencil from the kid who's sitting next to him. And Johnny's father is furious. And he said, Johnny, I can't believe it. I'm disappointed. I'm humiliated. You never, never, never steal a pencil from the kid who's sitting next to you. And beside Johnny, if you need the pencil, you can just say something. You could just ask. You can mention it. And I can bring you dozens of pencils from work. And... And the reason I think it's a it's kind of a funny joke is because we all recognize that taking 10 cents from a petty cash box would feel like stealing, but taking a pencil from work would not feel like stealing. Even, by the way, if we took the 10 cents from the petty cash box and went right ahead and bought a pencil with it. And, and this, is, I think, is the story of being multiple steps removed from money and the story about being able to tell ourselves stories about why what we're doing is actually okay. Right, so you could say, and and with the pencil, I mean, you can tell lots of stories, right? You could say everybody's doing it. You could say the workplace is putting it here for this purpose. You could say even if I take it home and give it to my kids, they'll leave me alone, and I'll have time to do two more emails. Clearly, would be beneficial for work. All of those stories are really about rationalization, and so so I had both research on cheating and both the realization of how rationalization is the central element here and what allows us in the environment to rationalize more, gets us to cheat more, and what in the environment allows us to rationalize less, gets us to cheat less. And then I thought about what about individual characteristics and what what individual characteristics would create more and less. So usually when we do the kind of experiments I do, we think about environmental interventions. We think about how the environment would facilitate more good behavior or bad behavior. But then I was thinking about what about personality traits? would facilitate that. And that's basically where I got to creativity, better stories. So first of all, I think that uh, dishonesty is partially a function of the individual and partially a function of the environment. It's very easy to think it's just a function of the of the individual, 
right? And we say if we only hire honest people, everything would be okay. But but the reality is that the environment plays a big role in this, right? Uh, let's say uh, both you and I think of ourselves as wonderfully honest people, but imagine that we were in Wall Street in 2007, and imagine that we could get five, ten million dollars a year bonus if we could only see mortgages or mortgage-backed securities as a good product, right? Ask yourself whether you wouldn't be able to tell yourself a story about why those are fantastic products. Now, I don't mean that you would lie that you would say, oh my goodness, these are terrible products, but let me pretend that they're good. With $10 million on the line, you would probably be able to convince yourself that these are actually quite good, or at least better than they are. So I think that most of the dishonesty is actually not about individual characteristics. Most of it comes from the environment. Now, I'm not talking about psychopaths, right? That's that's a different story, right? But but the, the cheating that all of us can do, a little bit of our taxes, uh, driving a little uh, over the speed limit, uh, adding a few things to insurance claims, adding a little bit to our expense reports, all of those things I think is something that everybody can do. And the question is, how flexible are the rules and what we deem acceptable and unacceptable, not from the perspective of being caught, but from the perspective of our own internal moral compass. If you put an incredibly creative person in something like the military academy, where they basically have no flexibility in any decision that they make, they're going to behave perfectly honest. Uh, on the other hand, you can take somebody who we think of as an incredibly honest person and, and put them as a, as a Wall Street executive uh, and make all their friends be Wall Street executives. And I think very quickly, they will not deserve sainthood. So, so I think, I think the way to think about it is the environment plays a large role and then creativity adds to that. But if you have an environment that is not allowing for dishonesty, that, that would not be such a big, such a big deal. And what's interesting though is, is how those two things interact, right? And whether people who are more creative also have a tendency to go to places that have more flexibility inherently. So uh, I have I have a, a friend here in at Duke in the history department who basically is arguing that many new technologies their first usage has been for dishonest purposes. Uh, when the mail started, for example, one of the first things that came with it was mail fraud. When you know they would promise you to sell you all kind of things that they never did. And then, of course, the U.S. government created the regulations and made, made it federal offense and so on. And that basically created the mail to be a very safe place to do business. And radio, he said, is the same thing. The first thing they were selling in radio was all kinds of terrible, you know, dishonest things, selling things that don't really exist. And his kind of analysis is that new frontiers call for particular kind of people who basically test the boundaries and push them. Uh, until we kind of figure out uh, what's acceptable and not acceptable and what we want to regulate and not regulate. So, so it could be that creative people are being, they feel kind of gravitational pull toward things that uh, the boundaries are less clear. So I think you, you want two things. I think you want situations with the rules are not very clear, that we have uh, flexibility, and where people have uh, conflicts of interest or a reason to have a biased perception of reality. Think about conflicts of interest, right? So um, if I'm your um, financial advisor 
and I get paid if you do action A but not action B, now I have a motivational reason uh, to see action A as being better for you. If I'm far away from it, I'm distant from it, and I have nothing to gain, then there's no motivational force that is going to push me. But if I have a motivational force that pushes me to see things one way or another, and then on top of that, the rules are not perfectly clear, uh, now my uh, motivational power has a, a way to influence my judgment or my decisions. And now if you're creative, you could do more of it. And, and you know, the, the sad thing is that uh, we seem to value cr- uh, flexibility, right? So if you think about accounting, uh, we, do, we do create all kinds of flexible accounting um, policies and uh, rules and regulations uh, because we understand that accounting, um, the profession can benefit from being more flexible, right? So, <clears throat> so somebody promised to pay you, but you haven't paid you yet. We said, well, why why don't you just, they've promised, why don't we think about counting that already and maybe discounting by some percentage probability that they wouldn't pay. But now you create a very subjective rule. What does the promise really mean and how much will they really pay and what is the discount rate we're going to apply to it? And and we see the benefit in this flexibility and, and we don't see the cost, right? So if you think about stuff like Enron, for example, Right, the, the government basically allowed them to participate in an accounting system that that had lots of very unclear rules about what counts and what not counts. And um, if you have a very strict rule <clears throat> that says the moment a dollar is deposited in your account, you can count it, and before you can't, now stealing is is very different than saying the moment somebody makes you a promise to pay, you can start counting it in some discounted way. And and the, I think there's a the, it's an important thing to distinguish between how acts of dishonesty start and how acts of dishonesty end. And I've been recently been interviewing all kinds of cheaters, people who've been you know uh, MCI, uh, people who've been uh, involved in uh, insider trading, all kind of white collar crimes. Uh, I don't know if you remember you remember Crazy Eddie, the electronic stores in New York. I interviewed people from that family. And mostly, almost exclusively, I would say that when people start taking the first act, uh, it is something that they can rationalize. But what happened later on is there's a slippery slope that takes them down the line and and they end up doing things that they just don't, they can't find a way back. And I think when you think about evil, evil genius, I think we need to find out what's the beginning and where's the end. And I think uh, the beginning action is probably rationalization uh, is a big is a big element uh, of it. Uh, but once they've taken the first act, the question is: Is this something that has a slippery slope and means that just people go down and down and down and there's no way back? You know, even even Madoff, I suspect I, I try to talk to Madoff. He's not going. He's refusing to talk to me. But I've talked to people who who know him and have dealt with him and invested money with him. Look, the guy seemed like an incredibly smart guy. He took lots of money from people and didn't seem to think about the end game, right? If you and I were going to steal, let's say, $20 billion, wouldn't we find like a nice island somewhere with no extradition rules and and figure out how to get there when the time comes? It is just hard to imagine 
that somebody who has, who is thinking about a crime in a cold calculated place is not thinking about what, what to do. But you know, if you think about Madoff, and, and you know, I can't verify it, but I would speculate that when he started, this was not the game he wanted to play. Right? He did not think that this is how it would end up. You know, and the fact that I think his son committed suicide. And um, that also suggests to you that there was something incredibly wrong, wrong there. That this was, this was not really the plan. I, I suspect that, you know, uh, based on other people that on the first quarter he did that, he said, I'll just do it for one quarter because things are kind of not well. And he kind of had a story about what happened. And next quarter, I'll make it up. And then another quarter happened and slowly, 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 he became more and more behind. Otherwise, we have this dilemma to say, how how come this crook has been able to do it for such a long time, but hasn't thought about about this in a better way? I think that evil genius probably start like all of us. Uh, maybe they're a bit more creative, so maybe their acts are more frequent, or maybe they're a bit more extreme. And I think later on, the vast majority probably gets involved in a slippery slope that it, that at some point there's kind of no way back. And and when you get into a situation about no way back, it's it's very tough, right? So uh, think about embezzlement. Uh, many people take money from their company because they have fallen on hard time or they have some medical expenses and they want they hope to give it back at some point. Just you know things just escalate and they they can't do it. So we've done a few things. The first thing we did was we just uh, took students and we measured how creative they were in multiple methods. And we showed that no matter what method of creativity measurement you take, the more creative people cheat more in our experiment that I described to you with the math problems. So that was the first thing. The second thing we did was we tried to say whether we can increase people's creative mindset for a little bit of time. They cheated to a higher degree. They did not solve anymore, but they uh, they reported to solve more. So they were not better, but they uh, reported a higher number. Then the other thing we did was we did something to do with priming. And priming is basically the word psychologists use to say we're going to change your mindset for a little bit of time to be more X or more Y. And we tried to prime people uh, with creativity. So we basically got people to think on uh, to, to become a bit more creative and there's all kinds of evidence that this work and there have been all kinds of wonderful experiments on creativity and priming including one experiment I particularly like that shows that when you expose people to an Apple computer logo compared to an IBM logo people become a bit more creative in things like the brick test we talked about earlier it doesn't last very long so the first thing was just kind of correlation between what people, creativity and, and cheating. The second thing, we tried to increase creativity in some people and not in others. And what we showed is that when we increase creativity in some and not in others, the people we increased their creativity cheated a bit more. So as we increase creativity, we also increase cheating. So that's that's more causal. We can't increase creativity by a lot with this priming. But the fact is you increase it a little bit and cheating increase a little bit is kind of supporting the idea that it's that creativity is the mechanism. And finally, we tried it in a, in a more market setup. We went to a big advertising company. We asked people, we did not use the math problem task. We asked people to report. We had a set of questions that asked people about their moral flexibility, let's call it. 
you, you were on a business trip, you got back home, but on the way to the office, you stopped in a restaurant and you had dinner and a glass of beer. Would you still report this as an expense report after you, even though it's after you got home? You got home, but then you went out. Does it still count? Uh, you, uh, you know, all kinds of questions like this, uh, that, that are kind of, uh, basically exploring the, the, the moral flexibility, right? In personal relationship, in taxes, in relationship with companies, with our friends, all kinds of things like that. We gave those to people across the company and we also asked them for what their job title was and which department they worked at. And then we asked the CEO of the company to tell us which jobs required more and less creativity. And this was not a big surprise, right? It was an advertising company. So the people in accounting, you know, need less creativity. The people who are have creative in the title need more creativity and so on. And what we basically showed is the people that as their as the role of creativity is larger in their job description, so is the amount that they cheated, that they declared more flexibility in our in our survey. What can we do about it? So <clears throat> this is um this is a tricky situation about what can we do about it because creativity is very helpful for lots of things. So I don't think we want to hire just non creative people. And I don't think we want to, you know, stamp creativity out, although sometimes I feel that um, my kids' school is trying to do that. But I think what we need to understand is that it's not just creativity. It's creativity, biased incentives, and flexibility. It's the intersection of all of those things. That if you take creative people and you put them in a situation where they have a conflict of interest and you put them in a situation... (laughs) <clears throat> where the rules are flexible, this is going to be a bad recipe. So I would, I would say that whenever rationalization is involved, not just about uh, creative people, not creative people, wherever rationalization is easy, I would worry a lot about the rules and the regulations, about uh, code of conduct, about uh, standard of behavior. And then, and then I would try to eradicate both those and conflicts of interest. Right. So, so for example, if you take a very creative person and we pay, you pay them like we pay judges, right? So, so judges don't get percentage of the verdict. So, so they have no conflict of interest in that regard. Uh, somebody in finance, they could make lots of money if they can see reality in one way versus the other. So, so I think we need to think about biased incentives, conflicts of interest, flexible rules, and creativity and rationalization. And we need to basically think about how dangerous is the concoction we've created of all of those ingredients. So, for example, you know, because artists never make any money anyway, almost, I wouldn't worry about them, right? What what kind of biased incentives can they have? But if you have, if you have a situation like medicine where uh, physicians can prescribe tests and then get paid for the patients doing those tests, or not just tests, procedures. Now, now we're dealing with a dangerous situation. And now, and now we need to worry about how flexible are the rules. And what, what the biased incentives are. And now is the place where, uh, creativity can start playing a big dangerous role.
I think we can we can uh, increase creativity. I mean, we can increase lots of personality traits, right? We we view ourselves often as a stable person with stable personality traits. Uh, lots of those can get increased or decreased uh, depending on where where we are. And again, creativity has benefits, right? It's wonderful to get more creative from time to time. Um, but I, I, for example, would worry about increasing creativity just before people doing their taxes or uh, just before people start playing golf. I mean, there, there, are, there are cases where uh, you can think about creativity exercises not being not being beneficial so i think there's a danger of saying creative people are cheaters and non-creative people are not we need to remember that the truth is we all have some creativity to some degree and that creativity is something connected to rationalization and and it's not about creative people doing it and non-creative people not doing it it's about all of us have the capacity to do it and the question is, when do we do it more and when do we do it less and who is doing it more and who is doing it less? But the real the real lesson here, I think, for me, is the fact that the ability to rationalize our dishonesty away is incredibly human. And we need to think about how to fight this generally. You know, when there's a risk that when we think about creative people, we think about, you know, Albert Einstein. And then we say, oh, there's not that many of them anyway, so why why worry about it? No, it turns out uh, it's not about Albert Einstein. It's about rationalization. And rationalization is something we can all do. Some people slightly better, some people slightly worse. And and we need to figure out how we combat this honesty because, you know, we, we all think about the standard model of, of dishonesty, the cost-benefit model. And our legal system and our police system and our enforcement system is basically designed to combat that one, right? It's all about uh, frightening people with prison sentences and uh, having police force. And it's all it, we're all directing our effort into the people who consider the cost and benefit. And, and we're almost not directing any effort toward the, the cheating that is about rationalization. And I think economically, the second one is much more dangerous than the first one. If you look at all of blue-collar criminal in the U.S. for a year, and then you look at the financial crisis, right? You, you, can't, you can't compare the two. Actually, if you probably look at all of blue-collar crime from the dawn of history, and, and you look at uh, the financial crisis, you probably can't compare either. Dan Ariely's book again is called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. You can get it as your free audiobook by taking advantage of the offer at www.audible.com slash Siam. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out the Scientific American staff picks. 10 apps for your smartphone or tablet. For example, there's the ISS detector, which lets you know when the International Space Station is visible. Yes, at night, but where you live, so you can look up and see it. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>